0: continue this series it's time to engage and what a series it's been I don't know about you guys but you know pastor Jared and then and then Victor and then Victor and Tony all three sessions have been memorable for me there's been so many like unveiling moments where I feel like they're pulling back the curtain and showing us here's how the enemy is attacking you and they use this phrase a couple of times and I wanted to remind you of it Satan you're like he's already at a fill-in what is this right Satan whispers lies that back up what I think I need, which has become the norm in the neighborhood. Now, this is one we've gone over before, but I wanted to set the tone as we change subjects this week to remind you, this is really what the whole series is about right here. It's about the three enemies of our soul, the three enemies. You're like, well, it's all about Satan, right? Yeah, well, he's enemy number one, and he whispers lies. But you see, sometimes we we forget this is an enemy, too. An enemy of I, of me, my flesh, right? So we got Satan, and we have I, and then what would be the third enemy? Well, it's the neighborhood, or as I would say, the world around us, influencing us. So we have Satan, we have our own flesh, and we have the world around us. Today, we're diving in to topic number two. You may go, wow, that was pretty early for a note. Well, I have a lot of notes on the note sheet, if you couldn't tell, so... But for me, if I was out there taking notes, I would enjoy having a lot to look for and going through. And so if you don't like it, it'll be back to normal next week, okay? But there are going to be a lot of notes. We'll go pretty fast today. So we see this laid out very clearly in Scripture multiple places. But today I wanted to look at Ephesians 2 as we start off here. And again, remember, the three enemies are Satan, my flesh, and the world, And I have them highlighted here so you can see more clearly what I'm talking about, okay? So Ephesians 2, verse 2. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. Right there in that one sentence, we see all three. One, two, three, Satan right here. You used to live in sin, that's me living in my flesh. And then the red, the rest of the world, just like the rest of the world, Well, it was normal because the rest of the world was doing it, right? So you see right here, the enemy influencing me to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Let's keep going in this scripture and see where else it shows up. And it's talking about the enemy. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. He's the spirit at work. You remember when Victor was preaching, he talked about him whispering lies in our ears. He is the spirit at work trying to get us to to give in to sin. The next verse. And all of us used to live that way. That's like the whole world. The whole world gives into this temptation. But I personally, I follow the passionate desires and inclination of our sinful nature, of my flesh. And by my very nature, I am subject to God's anger, just like everyone's else. So this is just a, a very brief breakdown of how we struggle with sin. And you can see in this breakdown, the, the devil, your own flesh, and the world around you. Three enemies. Think of it this way. Satan, let me give you a couple of real world examples. Satan lies to a 30 some odd age man that he should check out a younger woman, right? But here's the thing. That 30 some odd man, his flesh kind of agrees. Well, you would be better off with that younger girl, right? And here's the thing. The world around him, the world that we live in, confirms it all by saying, oh yeah, divorce happens all the time. Follow your heart. Do you see how this, this tactic works through our lives? Let me give you a much more relevant example. Satan reminds my daughter of the existence of a candy bowl, right? <laughs> my daughter's flesh longs for the taste of 10,000 dum-dum pops, Right? And she heard at school that this other kid, his parents let him eat candy anytime he wants to, right? And all of a sudden, the path to disobeying dad is laid and she makes a mistake. And it's, it's very clear to see. Now, that's a silly example, but you can see right there all three steps that the enemy is taking to try to attack us. And it happens so fast, so seamlessly, you know? Victor did a, a great job of breaking that down a couple weeks ago. And then last week, When Victor and Tony shared together, oh man, it it really impressed me the way they ended that. And I brought that note back just so you guys could be reminded. Silence and solitude before the father is the field on which the battle is fought. How do we how do we get over those lies? Ignore those lies, see them for what they really are? We get silent before the father we spend some alone time with the father anybody try to spend a little silent time this week after last week's message yeah was it difficult yeah where my office is at the church is in the old bus garage i laid down on the couch in my office and just was going to quiet down i purposely didn't turn on any music and about 2 minutes in i hear a mouse in the wall just rattling around <laughs> picking on something my like, god what are you trying to teach me here you know <laughs> it's difficult but that's the field on which we fight the lies of the enemy. So this week we turn our attention to the flesh. And this one's a doozy, so we're gonna move fast this morning because we live in a world that celebrates the flesh. Amen? You see it? We live there every day, day in and day out. And sometimes we see the flesh, what I'm calling the flesh, described as desire or want or, or we even call it like love or the heart they call it that, but really what it is, is the desire of the flesh, right? Much thought around this lust or desire or love comes from this guy. Anybody ever, anybody ever heard of him? Anybody name, name him? Who is he? Sigmund Freud. Yeah, well done. He, let's just say he's not the father of psychology, okay? Looking back, many people don't really appreciate his research because... It was so based on the subconscious that it really wasn't academically studyable. You can't really tell if any of his stuff was true or not. He's a wacko. He's a wacko that's what we say. <laughs> and, and to prove Sam's point, check it out. This guy, Freud, believed that many people in the world, their, their issues are because they are or have been suppressing a part of their mind called the id. Now, I know this is deep psychology. We're not getting into it. Don't worry. But the id is a stand-in for sexual desire and survival instinct. And Freud's point was, if you suppress that part, it's going to cause you discomfort. What we need to be doing is giving in, following that part of us, letting that part of us flourish. And that's how you find Joy. That's how you find contentment. It was this, if you would sum it up, really simply, it'd be like, quit denying yourself. And so take Freud's quit denying yourself, that philosophy, multiply it by a century of time, two world wars, a sexual revolution, and, and then like the breakdown of the nuclear family, the rise of divorce, and you get to this moment when a celebrated film writer, director, actor named Woody Allen is in his mid-50s. He leaves his partner and has an affair with his partner's daughter who is college-aged. And the way people find out about their affair is they found pornographic images on his phone of the college-aged daughter. All across media in the 90s, this was being covered. Never once was there a grain of remorse. Never once was was he sad or, or worried about what was going on. He was defensive, actually. But a few years later, when Time Magazine interviewed him, he continued acting apathetic, and he concluded the interview with this infamous remark, say it with me, the heart wants what it wants. The interviewer here actually asked him, so do you feel any?" Remorse? He's like, what for? I acted in, in what was true to what's in here. The heart wants what it wants. And as I was studying this, it was, it was interesting to me because back then, it was met with outrage. How dare he? He ran off with this young girl. How dare he say, you know, the heart wants what it wants to defend that. But you know today, 20, 25 years later, that's kind of a, an axiom of our culture, we use that as like a, a something to stand on. Well, the heart wants what it wants. Whether you're talking about chocolate or an affair, the heart wants what it wants. I'm gonna follow my heart, right? And if you don't believe me, check out some of these other fleshy slogans that we all wear on our clothes or we chant or we live by. First one, just do it, right? Just go with your heart, just do it, just live. Follow your heart, follow your heart. Anybody ever seen that? It sounds like a Disney movie all summed up in one line, right, follow your heart. You do you. This was one of my least favorites. So dismissive. And it's just so, I, I always felt like rude. Like I would tell my friend like, my deepest, darkest issues, and he'd be like, oh, you do you. You know, like that's so not helpful. But it's what we live by, right? Speak your truth. You ever heard that? This one looks like it should be on like a billboard being held out on the roadside. Speak your truth, no matter how, how much they try to quiet you. Be true to yourself. Now, what's weird is you're all uncomfortable because these are positive statements in our culture. And yet we can trace them back to Freud and this idea of you should never deny yourself. Because here's the truth of it, Freud's id is equal to what Woody Allen referred to as the heart, you know, my heart wants what it wants. They're really just stand-ins for what the scripture calls the flesh. Something tells me that Freud and Woody Allen knew their quote wouldn't catch on if they used the word the flesh, right? It just seems kind of creepy and weird. So they came up with these monikers to describe it, to hide it from us. But the truth of the matter is we're talking about the lust of the flesh. And we're being hoodwinked into believing that it's normal. This is what we should be doing. Romans 7.5 says it this way. When we were controlled by our nature... Sinful desires were at work within us and the law aroused these evil desires and that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Sinful desires is actually from the same Greek root that we get the idea of, the flesh. And Paul in the New Testament is the one who mostly developed this teaching, the flesh, denying the flesh, crucifying your flesh. We'll get to that in a little while. Which reminds me, I I don't have time this morning to get into all of this scripture, if you want to study more on this, Galatians 5, go read Galatians 5, and it really is a great breakdown of how to fight against the flesh. Welcome to the crossing, everybody. This is what we're talking about this morning. (laughs) The flesh and and how to deny our flesh. This This is not probably what you were expecting, but if we want to fight a spiritual battle and win, at some point, we have to talk about the flesh. We have to talk about what I want to do that I should not do. As Paul says, what I want to do that I should not do. Fleshy actions. Maybe you'll hear me refer to that this morning, just the word fleshy. Maybe, what if this week if you get hurt at work by somebody, instead of blowing up, or get, why don't you just ask them, why are you being so fleshy, right? Maybe we could start referring to this with each other, or maybe, you know, when my wife's being selfish, I'll say, why are you being so fleshy, babe, you know? Actually, I'm the more selfish one, so she'd probably be saying it to me. Why are you being so fleshy? Okay, not that one, right? <laughs> Joking aside, Paul, he did talk in, in depth on multiple occasions about Fleshy attitudes and and actions, and and they're not just limited to sexual lust, okay? Sam made a good point. The way that they're referred to in the scripture is lust of the flesh. But it is not ever meant to be understood as primarily or only sexual in nature. So I'm going to go through Galatians 5, just a few verses here, where he's listing out examples. And let's see if we can make it a little more relevant, okay? So here we go. When you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the, everybody say it with me, the desires of your sinful nature, that is the flesh, the results are very clear. So when we follow the flesh, here's what we get. Take a look at these first few words: sexual immorality, impurity, and lustful pleasures. Yes, that's probably what you think of when you think of lust. In today's world, maybe maybe it could be defined more as tender hookup culture, and the local bar scene or the local club, right? Let's keep going. Idolatry, sorcery, and then look at these yellow words. Hostility, quarreling, and jealousy. These are a part of lust of the flesh. You know that? That's what Paul's saying here. But these could be defined today as like Twitter, <laughs> uh, you know, public debate, and, and, and uh, watching too much CNN or Fox News. I mean, let's, let's get real, you know? Moving on, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, division, dissension. This to me just makes me think politics. Whether you're talking about national politics or even like, we don't think of this, but local office politics, listening to the gossip around the office and choosing to, you know, kind of subvert authority by by giving into the gossip and that that's dissension, division. It's related to the lust of the flesh. This next word is really tough. Envy. Ooh, envy. I think that traces back to even the basis of the internet. But, but shopping malls, you know, um, advertisements that we're exposed to hundreds of times a day, even Instagram. Our connection with these different outlets could be considered envy and related to the flesh. Drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these believe the Lord told me that that's Netflix and HBO and, 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 and other cultural narcotics, be it video games or movies, whatever it is that just, sports even, that just, man, they, they just put you in a place where you don't have to think about anything. You just tune in and tune out, right? That, that's what I think that he's standing in for here. And the truth of the matter is all of these things that I've mentioned, while they, you may say they're not bad on their own, and I hope they're not, because I'm a pretty avid user of HBO Max and Netflix. I like watching movies. But when we all collectively as a a country, community, let them lead our lives, we get to this dark anti-culture that we live in today. Because all of us at some level or another have allowed our flesh to lead our lives. And this is what we're tackling. And I'm not pointing anyone out in the room. I'm saying, as a culture, we give in to the flesh. We do not deny the flesh. Now, Paul spoke freely about these actions, right? Being so fleshy and, and, and awful. And he goes on in, in Romans 7. Earlier we read Romans 7, where we, we pointed out that word sinful de- desires, standing in for the flesh. In 7.6, the next verse, he says this, but now, this is the gospel, right? We have been released from the law, for we died to it, and we are no longer captive to the law's power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. Released. Captive. No longer captive. What does that make you think of? Freedom! Right? Somebody should be shouting out there, right? This is the gospel we're talking about. We have freedom from our flesh, by the grace of Jesus. Amen? But old culture has twisted even that word to tell us what true freedom really is. You see, freedom can be positive or negative. Freedom can be total freedom from any authority telling me what to do. Or it could be the freedom from what's been holding me back so that I can choose good. Does that make sense? That's like a positive, directed freedom, but there's also this version of freedom that, that is the narrative that we live in today, which is a total, just you know, without any authority to answer to, I am freely me, my own person, right? And, and I think it could be summed up in a quote from this great philosopher, thinker, Elsa. Yes, that one, right? This is actually in your notes. No right... No wrong, no rules for me. Say it with me. I'm free, right? That is the freedom that we think we can live in. No right, no wrong anymore, no rules. I'm free. Contrast this philosophy with what I would consider a father of the faith's philosophy St. Augustine, and I'm paraphrasing here, true freedom of choice is sufficient for evil, but hardly for good. When you have true freedom of choice, that'll get you to evil, but it won't necessarily get you to the good, right? Think back with me, and this is the last kind of historical pit stop we're gonna make today. I'm, I love history. I was a history major in college, One of my favorite uh, periods to study was the Revolution period, American Revolution. But did you know that there were other revolutions happening around the world at that same time? French Revolution in the 1780s. People all over the world were were shouting out, we will not be oppressed anymore by tyranny. We will live in freedom, democracy. We wanna self-govern. We want to have our own way of existing. This quote, interestingly enough, is from the Revolution period, right after the French Revolution, But it is not from France. It is not from the United States, what would become the United States. It's from England, not UK. It wasn't the UK at that time. England, who had just lost to the United States, right? This dude's name is Edmund Burke, and he was doing some philosophical writing on how can democracy work? Because to him, it's just so out there. All these people being free governing themselves, having no authority, how could it possibly work? And this is what Edmund Burke decided to say. He said, men are qualified for civil liberty. Men are qualified to be free only in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their appetites. Man, I'm not I'm not talking politics and American government this morning, but but this is some really enlightening material right here if you're in that field. Men are only qualified to be free in proportion to their ability to put chains on their appetites. That's good. That is really good stuff. And I see it from the scripture in, in Paul and, 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 and from Augustine, even from Edmund Burke. This is the main point. Pleasure is all about want. Want. But happiness, joy, a fulfilled life, whatever you want to fill in there, that's about the freedom from want. Pleasure is about just going after those lusts, those desires, what you want. But but happiness, true fulfillment is about being free from want. Being free from want. What our culture defines as freedom, no right, no wrong, no rules, can I say it this way? It's really slavery. Not to any authority. Dear God, like we have a problem with authority. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. But you are enslaving yourself one link at a time to yourself, to your flesh. Man, I can quit drinking, smoking. I can quit Netflix. I can quit anything, anytime I want to. I just don't want to. I'm enslaved to my flesh. I think I'm free, and that's what makes it so dangerous. Check this out. This is Edmund Burke's full quote near the end here. After he said that about they're only qualified to, um, to freedom based on how much chains they put on their appetites, he says this, society itself cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. The less power there is within, the more power there must be without. And it is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. case we've forgotten, intemperate means a person that gives in a little too much to something, right? It's a person that can't stop themselves, whatever it is, any kind of, any kind of fleshly habit. A person of an intemperate mind cannot be free. Their passion forged their fetters. In our modern-day language, we would say this. Their flesh is forging their chain. Their flesh forges their chains, May feel like an act of freedom, but you're becoming a slave with each fleshly action, becoming a slave to desire, to addiction. It's true of us as individuals, but it's also true as a community, as a church, even as a society. Slavery to our flesh is the most pressing danger. This one's not in your notes. You may want to jot it down. Slavery to our flesh is the most pressing danger. <clears throat> We've reached the midpoint here, and we're, we're now going to start kind of winding, winding back the other way. But I hope I've painted a picture for you just how Easily, we can buy into this. One of my uh, philosopher, you know, theologian guys I like to listen to says this way, we're being indoctrinated to serve our flesh one Disney movie at a time. Now, I I like Disney Plus. I watch a lot of their stuff. I'm not commenting on them, but that's a stand-in for fill in the blank here. Our culture, the way the world is around us, is encouraging us down this path of fleshly desire. When the truth of the matter is, spiritually, and we're seeing it in our country, and we're seeing it in our our town, we're seeing it in society at large, slavery to the flesh is a pressing danger. It destroys, it enslaves, and it creates a bunch of slaves that think they're free that's what we're living in. Now, there, there is some ways to fight this, and there's some ways that we can live in harmony with the Lord and walk with the Spirit and not be enslaved. And we're going to get there in a minute. But first, I want to tell you guys a quick story. When I was uh, 22, I had just graduated college, and I was, I was going to get my first job right. I got hired on at the Christian Motorcyclist Association, any CMAs out there? I got a few of you guys. Wonderful. Cool. It was awesome. I was so proud to be working there. And I got sat down like in the first couple weeks of my job. And they wanted to tell me about a, uh, a retirement program. I'm like, I'm 22. What do, you, what do you mean? I just got a job here. You want me to leave? They were showing me how I could invest. And they brought in a financial advisor. His name was Paul. And he sat me down and he showed me something a little bit like this, right? If you've ever seen something like this, you probably know what I'm talking about. He said, in your, in your 20s, it's going to look like some you know, sacrificial type of giving. It's going to look very difficult to put anything away. You know, like Maybe you'll be living paycheck to paycheck. Maybe you'll have kids. It's going to be hard to put money away, but, and you're not going to see any return. You're going to look in the account, and it's going to look like, oh, whatever you deposited, that's what's in there, right? But he said, in your 30s, you'll begin to see a little uptick. And here's the thing. The earlier you start, Zeke, if you start now at 22, look at where you'll be. When you retire, now this isn't the exact numbers of my portfolio. Don't worry, but <laughs> but the point is this: Look what happens if you wait till you're 30 to start investing. You'll still accrue some wealth, but it's it's just you're missing out. You're losing a ton of time here. And what does the law of returns tell us? What does interest tell us? It tells us more is accrued over time than can be accrued by amount. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. The law of returns says this. More is accrued over time than can be accrued by amount ever. Basis is this. For every cause, there is an effect. The cause, I put money in an account consistently from the age of 20. The effect is the account goes up. But there's a second part of this law of returns. For every cause there is an effect, but also the effect is disproportionate to the cause. What I'm putting in there as a cause is, is, you know, dime on the dollar. Not much of my money at all. It's not hurting a lot. But the effect over many years, man, it's going to be an incredible return. It's cool how that works, huh? But it's not just finances. The law of returns... I believe is like a universal principle that applies to so many different parts of our lives. The law of returns says this, we make decisions, but then our decisions make us. You see what I'm saying? We make decisions, sure, but then our decisions make us. Well, what are you talking about? You jumped and you're talking about finances now? No, this is true of the flesh. Let me tell you what I mean. You may have heard it this way sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It started with a thought. But this law of returns, this we make our decisions, then our decisions make us, they apply possibly even more so (laughs) to the way that we interact with our flesh. The more fleshy I become, the more I give in to my flesh, the more I am deformed into a slave to my flesh. The more that I resist my flesh, that I walk with the Spirit, the more I am transformed into an anxiety-free, living-the-best-life son of God. You know what's crazy? The law of returns, it's so applicable that sometimes we'll start sowing into the spirit and saying, oh, I'm doing the right thing. And after a month, be like, I'm not seeing any returns. My life's not any better than it was when I was just, you know, kind of going with the flow. What if you did that with your retirement account? No, 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 they explained it really clearly to you. No, it's going to take years and years and years. And, and when it's all done, you'll look back and go, wow, look what I did. What if our spiritual lives were like that? What if God says, Zeke, I want you to start sowing into the spirit. I want you to start walking with me and I will free you from your chains of addiction to pornography. I'll free you from your, your struggle with anxiety. And I go a month, I go two months, I'm like, God, where are you at? What are you doing here? What if he wanted to show me that in my 30s, I'm gonna look back and go, wow, things are changing. In my 40s, I'm gonna have a panic attack and go, God, where are you at? And he's gonna show me, well, you're way better than you were in your 20s. And what if in my 50s, in my 60s, I'm gonna be living one of the most serene, fulfilled, full life that I could possibly be living, not because I did it a month at a time, but because I, in my mid-20s, was called by God and started investing. And man, I didn't see any return for a while. But that effect, whew, exponentially started to go up. It It's such a fascinating thing. Again, okay, I lied to you. We have one more history nugget here. This is a a scholar who lived through both world wars. He was a German psychologist, philosopher. He said this No one starts off evil. He's actually studying the Nazis. People become evil slowly over time through a long series of choices. Might I say the opposite to you? No one starts off good. I believe is a scriptural teaching. We become good through a long series of choices, and I would put in there too, that that obey the Holy Spirit. We can say amen about the Nazis becoming evil, right? But I see myself in that quote. My choices, my decisions, they're making me And as I look back and I go, why is this in my life? Why do I struggle with this? Why won't this go away? I can see a pattern that led me to this path slowly, one choice at a time. Then you find yourself in this place where that law of returns is starting to pick up. You feel like you're in a, a negative place. You're like, how did I get here? Dr. Eric Fromm would say, "Slowly, one choice at a time. You gave yourself to that, little by little." So, how do we resist the flesh? How do we fight this battle and win? Victor and Channa are going to dive into this more next week, and they're gonna. Yeah, so have a good week. No, I'm not. I'm not letting you go. Don't worry. They're going to give you more information on this next week. But I'm going to set it up. I think that there's two things we see in Paul's teaching. Again, can't encourage you enough to go to Galatians 5. Do some Bible study this week as you prepare for next week. Galatians chapter 5. You may know it as the section that has the fruit of the Spirit in it, right? This is not on the screen, but outlined in here is also how to fight the flesh. How to fight the flesh. And he says it this way near the end of the chapter. This is the message version. It says, Legalism, that's just trying to do the right thing, is helpless in bringing this about. It gets in the way, actually, because among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities has to be killed off, has to be mutilated. The word used here is crucified. That is not a, that word crucified, that is not a, an update in the message version. That's straight out of the old scripture. Paul uses the imagery, <clears throat> disgusting, torturous imagery of crucifixion to talk about the flesh. It's not like, ah, maybe I'll, I'll wait till the moment and see what happens. It's an active, murderous attitude towards our flesh. I have to understand the gravity of the threat that it is to my life. And I have to actively try to put it to death. So how can we be free from the flesh? How can we fight the flesh? There's two things we're going to talk about this morning. And first is just that. We must crucify our flesh. Crucify our flesh. And I'm put this little moniker on it for myself. This kind of has more to do with willpower. Lots of times I think people that, and I, and I mean, I've been one of them, struggle in addiction or, or a major life-controlling issue. Pray and pray and pray that the Lord would deliver them. And sometimes we get to a place where we hope that deliverance is coming, but we're okay where we're at till it gets here, right? We stop putting any kind of willpower in because man, when that spirit power comes, things are gonna be good. But Paul is very clear. Crucify your flesh. Attack it. Put it to death. It is a not so subtle suggestion what he's asking us to do here. It's grotesque. Here's the truth when I see a young thing walk by, vying for my attention, lust flaring up by the grace of God, I do have the willpower to look away. And it's a choice, yes or no, but I have the power to look away. I can hold out against the temptation to look at pornography. I can choose not to take another hit of my drug of choice But the problem is with with this willpower, you know, crucifying our flesh, putting it to death. There are some temptations. There are some addictions. There are some life-controlling issues that are not, this is neurology, they're not rooted here in your decision-making center, your, your frontal cortex of your brain, but they have actually sunk down in your brain to your amygdala. That's where your emotion seat is. And now... Your struggle with sin is not a decision-making process. It is now an emotional response. And lots of times it's because of trauma. It's because of addiction. It's because you've walked this one choice at a time to a place where you really, you probably do not have the willpower. Just being real, being honest with you. You may not have the willpower anymore because now it's beyond just decision-making power. Maybe it's this way for me. My first run-in with pornography, seeing a pornographic image, was when I was eight or nine at my grandparents' house, late at night on the computer while they were all asleep. No accountability, no one who could help me, who could see that was going on. And can I tell you, for an eight or nine-year-old, that is like sexual assault. I was not looking for that. I was not, it, it came into my life in a way that only the enemy I believe, could have brought that into my life. And so for years, I didn't understand where those things came from, those feelings, those desires, those drawing things, and, I, and really didn't even talk to anybody about it until I was 14, 15. At that point, you guys, it wasn't just a, a, a easy decision to say, I, I'm not gonna do that. At that point, it, it, was, it was emotional. It was like a response in me. And it took a long time for me to begin to walk out of that, to begin to walk in freedom from that part of my flesh. And I couldn't do it alone. I had to bring people into my struggle. It was a massive, intertangled web of desire, and I couldn't see through it. But that is why Paul encourages us this way as well. He says, my counsel is this, still Galatians 5, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated experience? Why not choose to be led by the Spirit? When willpower failed me, and I, I used willpower as much as I could, but there were some moments that just, I couldn't handle. I had to walk with the Spirit. There's willpower, (laughs) and there's Spirit power. You know what Alcoholics Anonymous calls this? The higher power. You may go, oh, that's kind of weird. We're not talking about that. They understand that there are some temptations that you need something a little more than willpower to fight against. And we'll get back to AA in a minute because there's some beauty in the way that they do life. It's so cool. Spirit power. What is that? How do we tap into it? Great, I see. Willpower fails at a certain point. I need to tap into the spirit, but how? You know, it's so funny, the way Victor ended uh, his message. How do you fight the devil's lies? Well, pray, read the scripture, (laughs) right? Seems so, so simple. But it's the truth. And the same is here, too. How do we fight the flesh? How do we tap into the spirit power that we need? Practices, the spiritual practices. There's a couple that come particularly to mind in this way of walking with the spirit, dealing with the flesh. The first is this. How, do you, how can you tap into the spirit, really go into the spiritual disciplines and look for the spirit's power to come alive in your life? First, confession. You're like, oh, he said he was gonna reference Alcoholics Anonymous. They do this. And it's beautiful. Hi, my name's Zeke. I am an alcoholic and I got drunk last night. How many of you at your circle this week had a confession like that? Not many of us. And I wanna preach about Alcoholics Anonymous, but we're gonna move on. It's meant to happen in the church. It's meant to happen in circles. Confession. Not just about alcohol. I'm not, I'm not stuck on that. It's meant for us to confess our sin and our fleshly desires to a brother asking for help. And bringing others into this emotional pit that we've been stuck in, saying, I need help. I need someone to to be a shoulder for me. And it's also an act of commitment to letting the spirit in. I can kneel in worship over here and say to him, I commit to you, I won't sin anymore. But if no one else has ever brought in on that, where's the accountability? Also, going back to the lies, how easy it if, is it for the enemy then to convince me, oh, that wasn't real? No one else knows about it, right? Confession is essential. It's an opening of yourself, it's an asking for help with real action, not just in a quiet prayer that no one ever knew about. And the second discipline that comes to mind today that really fits with the flesh and fighting the flesh is fasting. Guys, this is not fun to talk about. Don't worry. And I want to say, as I go into this, I am not a professional faster or any, I don't even know, maybe that's an occupation. Look up faster. Are there fasters in the world? Okay. Um, (laughs) Fast, faster. Fasting is, in a sense, probably the most original sense, denying your flesh. And in this case of fasting, I'm not talking about Giving up social media, giving up sweet tea. Man, it's the South when we're giving up sweet tea, right? Those things would be considered abstinence, not necessarily fasting. Fasting as a spiritual discipline is what Jesus did. It's going without food. Some people do it uh, sunup to sundown. You can have a meal in the evening, right? Some people do it for multiple days. Jesus did it for a long time, right? Some people, it could just be, I'm gonna fast from the time I wake up till lunch. And in the morning when my belly's growling, I'm gonna pause and pray. That's fasting. It's denying your flesh. And you can sit there in your desk, belly growling and go, Lord, I want you to help me starve this habit like I'm starving my body. That is the practice of of, of fasting. Lord, help me to starve my flesh. Help me, Lord.